Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome back, listeners, and today I'm here to continue part two, the finale of Down Here by Michael Whitehouse. It's raining like crazy at the moment, and I have my tea at the ready. Just like me, a heavy storm has hit our protagonist, and he seeks to ensure his friend is safe. I won't share any more than that, and I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer, you lovely listeners. So turn those lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something different. Outside, the complexion of the night had changed markedly. The storm was now rampant, and so I hurried out onto the street and to my car, pulling my jacket around me. Thunder roared overhead up in the black clouds, and the wind raged against it in return, nearly knocking me off my feet as I reached the door of my car. Now the rain came, and as I sat in the driver's seat, even with my windscreen wipers on, I was staring through a sheet of water which wrapped around the world and all of its shadows. What had been a simple drive early in the night was now going to be fraught with danger. Above the lightning sparked, and soon after the thunder clapped like the gods waging war in the sky. I was taken back to being a child on a caravan holiday. I remembered the thunder sounding like it was just above where I slept, roaring so loud that I imagined my bones shaking. It was the first time I realized that man is powerless when faced with the will of nature. This is crazy, I said to myself, commenting on both the ferocity of the storm and my foolish attempt to travel home during it. But I felt I had already done my bit and did not want to spend more time with Eric than I had to. I wanted to help, but our friendship was far from mended and the thought of spending the night in his company was something for which I was not ready. The car grumbled into life, and I waited for a moment to see if the rain would subside enough for me to see better. The windscreen wipers flashed back and forward over the glass in excited motion, barely providing a split second of good visibility through every moment. The lightning and thunder screeched once more. It felt closer that time, and as I looked around me, two trees further along the road were being shoved around, bending and leaning in the wind, so much so that they looked like they could give in at any moment. Another flash of lightning, this time forked, cutting across the sky like a bloody scar, peeking through the dark clouds. Just as I concluded that the weather was not going to get any better, in fact, it looked like it was getting worse, I turned my attention to Eric's house again. The lights were off. The storm must have caused the power cut, as the other houses in the street were also now bathed in darkness, and the streetlights were no longer working. He's an adult, I said to myself. He can take care of himself. Then I thought about something he had said earlier in the evening. It hides. It hides in the dark. I berated myself for even considering it. No, whatever he saw that day under the bridge was a hallucination. But now, stuck in the dark, I had an image of Eric in my mind 
besieged by his own illness, seeing and hearing things that were not there. Frustrated with myself that I could not just drive away, I opened my car door to the elements and headed back inside towards Eric's house. The street was in complete darkness, the only light source the increasing cracks of lightning, which drew hideous caricatures of the world around me in shadow. Taking out my mobile phone, I turned the flashlight function on and used the underpowered narrow beam to light my footsteps as best I could. A gust of wind blew towards me, and in it I found it difficult to breathe. I walked at an angle against it, passing a tree which groaned under the weight of the wind, which itself swirled around everything, consuming it in an elemental roar. Quickly, I moved down the garden path and finally, I reached Eric's front door. I was expecting to have to knock, go in and make sure he was okay, perhaps even reluctantly spend the night until the power came back on. But when I reached the front door, it was lying open. The wind now carried the rain into the open doorway. All I could see was the blackness therein, and presented with it, I felt nervous about stepping inside. Eric? Eric? It's, it's David. David. Are you there? I shouted, trying my best to be heard over the storm, but nothing was said in return. Moving inside, I was cautious of where I was stepping in the dark. The house was a mirror image of the world outside, the ferocity inverted. The space was still and lifeless. Eric? I shouted again. A door creaked along the hallway from me. And so, phone light in hand, I made my way towards the living room where we had spoken before. The two chairs in which we had sat now lay empty. The glass of water which Eric had drunk from when taking his pills lay on its side. The remnants of the water dripping onto the floor. I was about to shout Eric's name for a third time, but something stayed my tongue. A feeling that someone was watching me. Footsteps now quickly sounded behind me. They rushed down the hallway and then were accompanied by the sound of a door opening up. Turning to the hallway, I could not see anyone there but now. Something had changed. A door, halfway along the wall, now lay open. Eric! I whispered under my breath, almost scared by the idea of what might answer. I cannot explain the irrational thoughts which were running through my mind, clambering for images and forms while surrounded by the nothingness of night, mentally filling the void with something tangible. Walking towards the door slowly, I peered around it and saw that it led down into the cellar. A steep set of wooden stairs delved below the house. Eric, are you there? I finally said, my voice louder this time. I thought I heard almost an inaudible creak below, but it was quickly drowned out by another crash of thunder. The wind howled like a banshee, finding cracks in the building through which to seep, and I was gripped by uncertainty. I could have run, or at the very least stayed upstairs. Perhaps I should have, but the gnawing image of Eric cowering, terrified below, was enough to shake me into action. I resented him for what he had done to me, for taking Alia from me, but I knew how debilitating his illness was, and I could not in good conscience leave him to it, or it to him. 
Wearily, I descended the stairs, knocking the dust from them as I did so. They were evidently rarely trodden, but there was no doubt that Eric had used them recently, perhaps just moments before, as I could see large smudges in patches of dust which looked like footprints on each step. My own footsteps sounded like dim remnants of the thunder outside, with a dark storm of the unknown waiting for me at the foot of the stairs. Lightning clattered near the house again, the momentary spark shining through a small vent near the roof of the cellar. The light from my mobile phone was not enough to illuminate the entirety of the room, but from what I could see, I was amazed at how empty it was. The floor was like powdered concrete, the occasional cardboard box sitting upon it, filled with childhood memories and toys. A thick layer of dust covered the little that was there. It was clear then that the cellar had never been converted into a habitable part of the house. There should have been no one down there, good or bad, but the sight of a darkened doorway in front of me filled me with dread no less. Ducking underneath, I found myself in another empty room. The walls made from old red and brick, but the colour was dampened by the dust. The cellar was a copy of the house above, like a dark twin, the same layout, the same rooms, the same hallway at its centre, but while the house above was filled with the things of the living, the cellar was filled with their absence. Eric! I whispered now. I am not sure why. I have never been one to be frightened of the dark, not since I was a child, but down there in the darkness, while lightning crackled up in the atmosphere, it felt justified in my caution. The sound of a foot scuffing the powdered concrete floor sent a cold shiver through my veins. Apprehension took hold of me, and a deep desire to go back upstairs threatened to overthrow any notion of finding or helping Eric. A self-preservation which, like the dust hanging in the air, blanketed my emotions. My heart raced, my breathing rasped as I inhaled the dust. Moving in a panic, I headed back to the stairs. At least that was my intention. For a moment caught in the grip of anxiety, I became disorientated. Turning, I could see two doorways, and I was unsure which one I had come through. Staring at them anxiously, I tried to set my thinking on a more sensible course. All I had to do was walk through one of the doorways. If I then found myself in an unfamiliar part of the cellar, I would turn back and go through the other door. Then, it felt as though the air became charged, like the tense warning before a lightning strike. My skin turned to goosebumps, and, reaching up, I could feel the hair on the back of my head standing on end from the static electricity, my attention momentarily distracted from the two doorways. It was quickly brought back into focus when, from one of the rooms ahead, I heard it, a voice, in a barely audible whisper, where I could hear more breath and saliva in the mouth than speech. Someone spoke two words, but they were so indistinct that I could not be sure what they were nor even if they had just been a figment of my imagination, a product of my strange surroundings. Whether it was because of Eric's story or not, I cannot say. But the only phrase I could fit to those two whispered sounds was, Down here. A cold sweat clung to my body. A nervousness gripped me as my hand began to shake while holding the phone. The light from it 
vibrated in return, and I stood for what felt like a lifetime staring at the two doorways. Which one contained my path to freedom? Excitement then grew as I remembered the powdered concrete at my feet. Looking down, the blue light from my phone dimly lit smudged markings on the floor, which I was certain were my own. They led back through the doorway on the right. Feeling courage return, I stepped through, and in a moment of utter shock, I realized that the markings were not made by me. They were made by someone else. I found myself in an unfamiliar part of the cellar and turned immediately to leave. When I did so, it all happened so fast. My light caught something in front of me, a person or form. It moved past me and headed towards another doorway. Then I heard the scream. Eric's scream. It's here! He shrieked, manic, clearly in the throes of his delusion. I followed quickly and then heard panicked footsteps accompanying the cries which now turned to a plea, a direct plea to me. Follow it, David. It's here. The footsteps now ran up the staircase, and as they did, I noticed that the charged feeling in the atmosphere had dissipated. The lightning must have struck elsewhere. The feeling of dread lifted and was then replaced with a different kind of anxiety. Up above, I heard Eric run down his hallway and out into the night, screaming, I see it! I see it! Clambering through the cellar, I finally found the staircase and, relieved that I was leaving that dark place behind, rushed up them in pursuit of my friend. I gave chase and headed out into the night. The rain was coming down in sheets, and above, the lightning and thunder coerced each other into terrifying displays of combined might. But there was no sign of Eric in the garden. The water streamed down my face making it difficult to see as the wind battered me from left and right. A swirling invisible force intent on leaving no stone unturned. Rushing out to the street, I looked again, and at the top of the hill, some way away, I saw him. Eric was running through the night. He had too much of a head start, and in any case was faster. I would never catch him on my feet. A gust of wind and rain buffeted me around before I finally reached my car and got inside. Turning the ignition, the engine burst into life, growling as if threatened by the storm. Putting my foot down, I drove up the street in his direction. It would only take me seconds to catch up to him, even in that damned weather. But the night had other plans for me. I was gaining, but just as I reached within a few feet of him, ready to stop and pull him into my car, a painful creak shrieked nearby. The groan of a life ending. A tree which had stood for at least a hundred years fell, crashing in front of me. Instinctively, my foot slammed on the brakes. I felt a thump as the front of my car smashed into the tree trunk lying before me. A large branch jutted out, and as I crashed, it smashed through the windscreen. I saw it only a second before and hid under the dashboard, my heart pounding. The glass shattered over me, and the wind and rain broke into the car like a swarm of rats climbing through the open wound in the front of the vehicle. Disorientated, I opened the door to my right and fell face first onto the road. The concrete surface gushed with water, carrying with it leaves and dirt. 
As I hit the ground, the water splashed up into my mouth and I gasped and coughed as some of it stuck in my windpipe. Lightning shattered the sky and the thunder raged as I caught my breath. Pulling myself to my feet, I looked at the car. It was caught in the clutches of the fallen tree, the branches enveloping it. Steam rose from somewhere and the engine answered my cough with one of its own. It would take some effort to get the car out and even then, I was not sure it could be salvaged. Any feelings of grief for my car were quickly wiped away as a squall of wind wrenched at a garden fence across from me. It tore several wood slates from their housing and launched them further down the street. A lamppost above rattled in the wind, its light still extinguished, and I feared that it too would topple, crushing me in the process. It was too dangerous. I had to get back to Eric's house and out of the storm. I guess I felt more for Eric than I could admit to myself that night, even after everything he had done to me. I saw up ahead through the storm, the rain lashing against my eyes and blurring my vision. I saw the distinct figure of Eric, not much further along the street, heading deeper into the storm. Something indistinct then flew through the air, carried on the wind. At least, it appeared that way. Perhaps it was a plastic bag, or... No, a piece of cloth? Whatever it was, it weaved and darted through the rain, and I watched as Eric waved his hand above him, trying to batter it away. The object must have carried more weight than at first apparent. As it struck Eric on the head, he fell to the ground and the object continued on its way. Carried by the fierceness of the night, I could not leave him lying on the road, so I climbed over the fallen tree and ran along the street towards him, the wind blew in my face, and as it did so, I found it almost impossible to breathe, turning my head to the side just to inhale barely enough air to continue. As I approached Eric in the dim light of my phone, I saw a cut on his unconscious head, blood trickling from it. Leaning down, I reached out in an attempt to wake him, but as I did so, he opened his eyes and let out a hideous scream, a sort of panic cry like a child seeing something awful under its bed. His arms flailed as he pushed me back. Eric, it's me, David, I yelled, but the thunder drowned at my voice. Eric, we need to get back to the house. I could barely hear my own voice, and I imagined that for Eric, it was a nightmarish scene. Waking up disorientated, seeing your friend above you, the lightning illuminating his face as his mouth opened and shut without apparently conveying any meaning. He lashed out, striking me on the nose. I fell to my knees for a moment, dazed, as he climbed to his feet and dashed off into the night. Eric, no. I felt myself say under my breath, it was madness. Madness which had gripped him, madness to follow. But follow I did. I ran down the street as the hill now descended on the other side, then through a small wood across from the primary school we had both attended as children. Finally, I struggled across Kings Park Avenue, a long street usually bustling with traffic, now doused in darkness, rain and dread. And there we were, on Station Road, the bridge which crossed above Kings Park train station, that innocuous little place where all of this had begun. Eric stopped for a moment in the middle of the empty road. Whether it was terror or confusion, I could not rightly tell, but it was as if he was waiting for something to happen. 
perhaps hoping for evidence of the thing under the bridge which he believed had been hounding him, I saw nothing but the raging storm, tilting his head as if he had heard something, as if you could in that storm. He suddenly ran to the staircase which led steeply down to the station. I followed as quickly as I could, still gasping for air, fighting the wind which threw itself with all its might against me. Reaching the stairs, I saw Eric below me on the platform, peering across the train line to the half-archway under the bridge. Eric! I screamed again, this time a momentary lapse of thunder, allowing my voice to be heard. He looked up at me, looked up, and pointed across the train tracks to the half-tunnel. I shook my head. No, Eric, please! We need to get out of here! But he paid no heed to my words, if he heard them at all. He dashed across the platform, rushing to the bottom of the stairs. I was helpless to stop him. By the time I reached the platform, he had already climbed down from it, onto the tracks, and was making his way across them to the underside of the bridge. Above the line, the power cables swayed aggressively in the wind like necrotic veins, and a cold feeling now passed through my body. How I wished I had rushed across the tracks to stop my friend immediately, but I could not. Something gripped me, a fear like no other, something primal, like the terror which spiders and snakes elicit automatically, even from those who have never encountered such creatures. It felt as though we were not alone, and that whatever accompanied us was something which should not have been. Eric pushed on. I watched as he reached the other side of the tracks. Standing before him was the half-tunnel, its mouth gaping and dark. Yes, that was it. That place was darker than everything around it, a place not fit for people, perhaps fit for something else, something inhuman. That irrational thought finally spurred me into action. I peered down the train line which continued for miles vacantly. Then I rushed across them to find my friend. The thunder and lightning coalesced once more, and as it did so, Eric stepped into the half-tunnel. I moved forward. The gaping more of it seemed bigger somehow than I remembered. Once again, the paralysis of that strange fear, that uncanny feeling of otherness took me. And so I stood for a moment, waiting. My only company, the howling wind, and seething trees on the side of the tracks as they spasmed rhythmically with the storm. I could not see inside, nor could I see any trace of Eric. It was as if he had entered into another plane, another place, and vanished to a Stygian abyss in which human beings were not meant to wander. I tried desperately to free myself from Eric's own delusion as I stared at the nothingness of the half archway, but I could not help but question what was meant by the two words which had started it all. A hand reached out from the darkness and grabbed hold of me. Eric's drawn face appeared too, and he pushed me down the embankment. I tumbled and fell onto the track, my chin and shoulder crushing against the cold wet metal of the train track. Above me, Eric stood, his eyes wide and bright, but his face etched in terror. He said something, and the elements covered it like a shroud. What? I said, standing up feeling blood gushing from my chin. He spoke again, this time more feverently. But again, I could not hear him from the storm. Rushing forward, he pushed me away again, 
pointing up the stairs to the road above. He screamed and yelled, his arms flailing, glancing back several times to the mouth of the half-tunnel. But I could not hear him. All I could see was the fear in his face. For the last time, he pointed back at the half-archway. Lightning crackled, and... Did I see something inside? Was it illuminated by the lightning? Just for a moment? A shape? A shadow? I could not be certain. Something cracked nearby. The sound of wood splintering. Eric pushed me out of the way as a large tree from the embankment above us gave way, falling several feet from him. I watched in horror as the tree cut through the power lines above, cut through them in sparks of electric blue, and then swallowed Eric whole. I saw it, the main trunk hitting him, crushing him into the ground. The power lines flailed around, thousands of volts emanating from them, the electricity like an enraged prisoner unleashed. If they touched me, I was dead. Instinctively, I pulled myself quickly back onto the platform and fell onto my hands and knees, scrambling away. Turning back, I watched as the power line smoked and growled. Somewhere under it all, Eric's body lay. I called for an ambulance and for the fire brigade. I guess they were busy that night, with the storm and the havoc it was causing around the city. It took nearly an hour for them to arrive. By that time, the wind and rain were calming. The thunder and lightning still sounded, but now miles away on the horizon, like a ferocious animal moving off, well-fed and sated. After the power lines had been shut off, I watched as the firefighters sifted through the smoking embers of the tree, watched as they finally lifted the tree trunk off the line and discovered the pulverized body of Eric. He had been burned to a crisp from the electricity. Whether it was that which had finished him off, or the impact from the tree, I do not know. All I do know is that now he's gone. My old friend. I often tell people that it was his illness that killed him. That the hallucinations were too much for anyone to cope with. They believe me. Though I wonder sometimes if I believe myself. I'll conclude my account by simply saying this. Sanity is a fleeting, temporary condition. We all have our delusions, our ideas of how the world works, and what constitutes reality. But such things are not concrete. They are merely interpretations of what the world truly is. A shadow of the universe. An echo of what is really there. A facsimile put together by our brains collecting data from our unreliable senses. In this way, we are always removed from the truth. Staring out from behind the warped glass of our own eyes. Who knows? what the world is actually made of, and what is contained within it. For Eric, whatever he heard, whatever he saw, it was real for him. Real enough to make him believe in something far removed from the ordinary, something most people are not meant to see. For myself, I truly hope that such a revelation is kept far away and that the world remains understood, calculable, and known. I choose to believe that what Eric saw was not objectively real. Despite this belief, I have never visited the station at Kings Park since that night. For in my weaker moments, I fear 
that I may hear those same two words. Those two words, real or imagined, which led my friend to the dark recesses of the human mind. Where our own personal monsters lie in wait, ravenous and ready to make themselves known. This concludes Down Here by Michael Whitehouse. Just wow, what an ending. I didn't expect this. It leaves me wondering whether or not this thing actually existed. Here's my hypothesis. I think Eric's delusions drove him into eventual madness. Those two words David heard whilst he was downstairs, in Eric's house, I think they were actually Eric whispering to himself. He then follows Eric outside, where he is attacked by debris on the hill, believing it was the ghost or apparition. Whatever the heck he thinks was following him, my justification stems from the fact that he punches David in the face, not recognizing him as a friend during his madness. Here's the kicker though. Was there something down there once David reached Eric under the archway? Or was this pure madness? I want to hear your thoughts. What do you think? Feel free as always to comment. No idea or guess is stupid. And if you have different thoughts on what happened, I'd love to read a different perspective. And of course, a huge thank you to Michael Whitehouse and a special thank you to all of you for listening. Tomorrow, I have for you a creepypasta and let's just say, you're going to need a big shoe for this one. Thank you for listening. And as always, till next time.